Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Comparative Perspectives on Illicit Crop Economies and Non-Punitive Rural Drug Policies. So hello, everybody, and thank you for joining this session. Um, we have a fantastic panel about comparative perspectives on illicit crop economies and non-punitive rural drug policies. Uh, we have invited three fantastic speakers to talk about what is going on in Colombia, Mexico, and Bolivia regarding drug policies uh, in the rural area, and how can we uh, do more novel interventions uh, uh, for these uh, type of economies. Uh, so we're gonna go, uh, we're gonna have three presentations. Uh, so I guess we should start. Uh, <laughs> the first presentation is uh, Maria Pilar Lopez Uribe, who is a professor at the economics department at Los Andes University at, uh, in Bogota, Colombia, uh, and also a researcher at the Center for the Study of Security of Drugs, CESET. Um, I guess I didn't introduce myself. I'm Maria Alejandra Vélez. I'm a professor also at Los Andes University and the director of the CESET Center. And we have organized this uh, panel so we can discuss about these uh, new no novel interventions in, in the Andes region and Mexico. Uh, so, Maria Pilar, please go ahead. You have about 10 or 15 minutes. Thank you, Maha. Um, well, I'm going to present today a project on land property rights and drug policy, uh, evidence of the program Formalizar para Sustituir in Colombia. This is a jointly work with Juan Carlos Muñoz. Uh, he's a professor at the Universidad de Afit, and also with some students from Los Andes and Afit uh, as well. Well, what is this paper about? We basically were actually studying the effect of allocating land property rights on the permanent substitution of coca plantation. We're going to use uh, um, the program, we're going to study the program Formalizar para Sustituir that was implemented uh, in 2016. Uh, we have data until 2019, we just got the data until 2022. Tw uh, until 2020, but um, we're going to present results today until 2019. Basically, this is a program that uh, gives land titles to households uh, in exchange for a commitment of the households to substitute any coca plantation or illicit crop by uh, illicit or legal um, crop, right? kind of like replace the coca plantations um, <clears throat> for a illicit crop. Uh, we have here microdata. We have very good and detailed data. We have household surveys and also year reference data at a village level. So the, the type of information that we have um, contain a lot of a lot of a lot of detail. So basically, we um, the requirements to be a beneficiary of the program are very standard. Uh, the requirements. To, um, to be a beneficiary of the programs are very standards. Uh, and we kind of like, we have municipalities and villages all over the country and in different regions. And we kind of like take that into account uh, to estimate a causal effect of giving property, property rights to peasants uh, and see the effect of that on uh, coca plantations and coca substitutions. So, 
With this in mind, we have very briefly going through the data. So we have uh, land titles that the program uh, allocate at a grid level. Uh, we have the exact location of where these legal titles were given by the programs. Uh, we also have all the information, a very detailed information of illicit crops as well. Uh, we also have some geographical variables that we're gonna use as a control. Uh, and on the other side, we have household surveys that were collected by uh, UMODC. Uh, these, these surveys include information about, I mean, the, the household's information on family characteristics, property information, productive activities and illicit crops, household economy. And we have two waves of this survey. So we have a baseline in 2016, uh, where we actually uh, have here all the households that were exposed to the program. So we have almost 7,000 7, surveys, and we have a follow-up round in 2018 uh, of about 500 surveys of uh, just households that were beneficiary of the program. So we have a baseline in 2016 of around 7,000 uh, surveys that were exposed to the program. And then in the second round, we just have a smaller survey, 500, 500 surveys, where we actually are studying just households that got a long a land title uh, through the program. So our model specification is, uh, is very, I mean, it's very standard. We are using our uh, unit of analysis is, is the smallest one that we can get is the village. We want to see how, uh, the, how the percentage of the village area that is covered by illicit crops change over years. So that's the, the variable that we want to explain. We have the, the, the period of a study is from 2010 to 2019, the treatment period where the, actually the program was started to be implemented was uh, since 2016 until 2019, and we're basically going to see the area that was formalized, that were, you know, area that were titles were given uh, by the program, and we're going to compare with those municipalities, with those villages that didn't receive um, any title. So our empirical strategy uh, is as clean as we can get. Uh, we actually going to compare uh, two different groups of villages. Both of them were exposed to the program, were prioritized by the program, were supposed to be, um, uh, you know, to have land titles in these villages, but some of these villages received property rights and some of them did not. So we're going to compare the treatment group is going to be those villages that were exposed to the program and received uh, property rights. And the control group is going to be those villages that were exposed to the program, but couldn't receive any property rights. So we're going to compare these two groups. We're going to use, uh, we're going to, we're going to run two different empirical strategy, uh, difference and difference, but we're going to compare the control group in both cases are going to be, are going to be different. Um, but as I mentioned, as clean as I can get. So our results so far, uh, are basically quite strong for different groups and for uh, within each of these groups uh, for different control groups. Um, basically, what we found is that in those places that uh, those villages that were exposed to the program and received uh, land titles through the, the Formalizar para Sustituir program, we actually observe uh, a decrease by 1.4 percentage in the area of the village, the village area that uh, cultivate illicit crops. 
So there, there is a, a, an important and negative effect where, where actually this is suggesting that places where they were beneficiary of the program, actually after that decreases the percentage of the area that had uh, illicit crops. We, we use uh, the, the, the older empirical strategy and we find, we get similar results. So what is the potential mechanism that we have here? Uh, we actually use the survey to study the mechanisms behind this effect. It looks so far that there is an important effect and that actually the program was working. But we want to actually dig a little bit more what is behind this. So we study, we just use information of the households that were actually surveyed in both rounds, in both waves in 2016, before they received the land title, and in 2018, after they received the, 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 the land title. And what we find is that basically revenues and expenditure increase uh, by an important percentage. Increasing household income was around 30%. The average expenses increased by around 40%. Uh, information about, for example, self-consumption or access to credit uh, had an important increase. For example, credit application increased from uh, 15 to 15% to 22%, almost a seven percentage point, and 90% of these credit applications were actually approved. We also find important um, an important uh, change in the public service access. There was an increase of seven percentage point in electrical energy consumption and of nine percentage point in internet access. So it seems that the effect, once they give the, the land title, one, once the program is implemented, they give land titles to the peasants, to so these households, uh, the mechanism how we observe a decrease in uh, in the in the in the illicit in the in the coca um, coca plantations is through an increase in income. Uh, and expenditure. We still are digging how is this income, how, how, how this income increases. We also kind of like divide these surveys by head of the gender of the heads of the head of households. Important for us is that it seems that it's very balanced. 40% uh, of, the, of the head of households are, were women, are women. Uh, and actually the average age of the head of the household is very similar. Uh, however, we actually observe different um, and an important difference in the credit approval uh, and in the credit sources when we dig a little bit more on uh, on the gender aspect. For example, uh, only forty three percent of the of the credits that women uh, um, require were approved. Well. This was 50, 56% for the men. And the credit sources uh, as well were different. While for women, there were mainly NGOs, cooperatives, uh, Banco Mundo Mujer, NGOs. The credit source or the credit funding for, for men that actually requ uh, requests a credit uh, was Banco Agrario, which is the main public uh, bank um, in Colombia in the rural areas. We also calculate uh, the multidimensional poverty index. And what we observe is an important improvement in the household conditions, in the, in the household conditions and in educational and in educa uh, educational conditions. Uh, when we dig a little bit more of these IPM results, what we find is that there is not any di difference between women and men 
by head of households, women and men in sociodemographic characteristics. But when we actually see, uh, we estimate the incidence and intensity of poverty. And when we calculate the IPM, in, uh, the IPM, the index, the poverty index, it seems that uh, there is an important decrease in incidence and intensity of poverty and the fact the program seems to have a stronger effect or, or, um, on households where the head of the household is a, is a one. Then basically so far what we are showing here is the households that were beneficiaries of the program experienced on average a decrease in poverty and an increase in welfare and living conditions. There is an important decrease in the, in the poverty index, both in intensity and incidence. And it seems that the effect is stronger for women than for men. Then we want to think a little bit more about this because we believe that it's not enough to have land property rights, right? to substitute uh, coca plantation. So we wanna see what else is, is going on here. So we know that when you give land property to, uh, to households, there is an effect, there is a decrease in the coca, in the, in the coca plantations uh, through, it seems through an increase in income, but it looks like when we see the effect over time, the effect over time decreases. So this is, is suggesting that it's not enough to just give property rights to, to the peasants to substitute um, coca plantation. So we're actually working right now on this. We're using this survey, the same survey, uh, where the, the second, just the second round of the survey, where we just have all the sample are households that were beneficiaries of the program. But we actually gonna separate this uh, in, in two groups. One of these groups are households that receive a land title, but also receive uh, some uh, public goods and, and, and the state to these households actually uh, was more present through roads, through actually access to public service. Um, and the other group is gonna be, is gonna be those households that only receive, only receive land title, but actually didn't get any other public service from the state. So, did, did not get access to roads or did not get any um, increase in, in, in utilities, for example. So what we observed so far is that actually the change in the, in the income, only when we take into account, only when we take into account households that receive property rights is very much stronger when the, the household receives property rights and roads and more estate presence than when the household only receives property rights uh, and the state didn't arrive you know with any other public good uh, that is necessary so with this so far I mean we of course each of this part has a lot of um, you know work behind um, we we have different robustness checks we check different like assumptions of the of the empirical strategies that we're running but overall what we get is the following so far on average the area with illicit crops decrease uh, between 0.90 percentage point and um, 1.3 percentage point, which is around 1.5 percentage and 1.66 percentage. In the village, wait, allocate, uh, when the state actually allocate property, land property rights, 
through formalizar para sustituir pro, uh, program relative to those that were part of the program, were exposed to the program, but did not get any formalized line. <clears throat> Uh, preliminary evidence, which is the one that we're working right now, suggests that the state present plays a, a key role in actually ensuring long-term effects. It seems that it's not enough, and this is, this is one of the main findings, is not enough to give property rights if we want to see a permanent effect over time of the program. It is important that the state implement these type of programs given property rights, uh, but this only as a first step. The state needs to provide other public goods as roads or as you know uh, public services uh, to actually have a permanent increase or a, a higher increase uh, in their incomes and uh, in, uh, yeah, an effect of, of the program. So, so far we have two, two different kind of like topics to discuss here. The first one, more or less what I was mentioned, land property rights are actually essential. It's an essential mechanism for the substitution of illicit crops, but it's not enough. It's just a first step. The alternative development programs that include land property rights should be a priority uh, by the government, but it's important that if we, we want to have long-term mechanisms, that is, the state needs to provide more than just property rights. Uh, for example, support on productive projects, for example, access to markets through roads, for example, uh, access to uh, new technology or actually more public services, right? If we actually want to observe a permanent transition to, from illicit crops to illicit economies. And then the second part that is also is just suggestive here is, is about the gender effects. It seems that it's important to distinguish, to, to distinguish the, the effects of these programs uh, when we have a woman head of a household or when we have a man as a head of a household. So focuses on different effects rural programs have uh, depending on the household's head's uh, gender. And with this, I think I close. Thanks. Thank you, Maria Pilar, for these very suggestive and interesting results. Uh, I think we're gonna have questions at the end after we hear all the panelists. Uh, so now from the coca crops in Colombia, we move all the way to uh, poppy crops in Mexico. <laughs> and for this, we're gonna have um, Roman uh, Lecourt, and he is the co-founder of Noria Research and a program officer of Me Mexico Evalua. Um, and I think you're gonna give us a, a, a very different perspective of what's going on in, in Mexico. Thank you very much, Maria Alejandra, for, for the invitation. Thank you for having me today. I'm, I'm very, very happy to to present the, the work we have done on, on opium first, because I'm, I'm very happy to keep the dialogue open between Mexico and, and Colombia on, on illicit, uh, illicit crop cultivation, something that I think we have, um, we have been working on and, and I'm really glad it's, it's actually um, giving, giving fruits. And second, because I think it's, um, of course, like Colombia and Mexico have, have very, um, very much uh, strong similarities in terms of, of their participation to, to drug trade in, the, in, that, in that case. But in the case of, of illicit cultivation, it's, uh, it's, a huge, um, it's a huge gap. It's two very, very different worlds. And it's especially different when it comes to actually um, nonviolent policies 
um, used by the state or public authorities in general in order to, for example, substitute um, illicit cultivations, right? So basically, what I'm going to, to present today is the result of a, of a two years uh, research project run in Mexico by Noria Research and Mexico Unido contra la Delincuencia, a research NGO and advocacy NGO working on, on drugs policy that, that, you, that you probably already um, know. And we have been working on documenting qualitatively and quantitatively opium production in, in Mexico. So opium and heroin production in Mexico and the trade that goes basically 90 to 95% of it to uh, US and Canadian markets where Mexican heroin um, amounts for around 90, 90% of the, of, the, of the consumption. What I'm going to present today is actually the qualitative part of the, of the project. And it's interesting because although Mexico is considered to be the world's second or third producer of opium and heroin, and poppy economy is actually crucial to some of the country's most marginalized rural re regions, there is no initiative that is dedicated to produce constant empirical knowledge on, on the issue. So we leave the policy orientation of the issue for, for the general discussion afterwards in order to present uh, what we have at stakes in, 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 in Mexico. And again, let's be quite blunt. There is no available work on substitution or nonviolent policies in, in Mexico. It's an absolutely open uh, topic and we can get back to it um, after, after the, um, in, the, in the discussion. So again, um, Mexico is one of the world's principal producers of illegal puppies and, and heroin. And this reality, one of the pillars of the country's war on drugs, uh, contrasts sharply with the scarcity of studies that seek to understand what this market represents in the social, economic, political, and agricultural panorama of the country. What we found is that the drug derived from puppies represents an illegal resource, of course, that, that modificates and transforms social and economic equilibriums in Mexico. The boom of the puppy economy in the years 1980 and 1990 represented a brutal turn that severely shook up perspectives on work, relations between rural and urban spaces, and the way in which the Mexican state actually relates to marginal territories. In that case, I, as I was mentioning, the, the understanding of illicit crop production in Mexico is limited by the absence of any systematic recording that would make it possible to monitor the evolution over time, their territorial distribution, and the basic characteristics of production. In that sense, and to enter what's going on in Mexico's opium production, we found that basically to us, opium puppy is like an open door into territories that are emblematic of the historical Mexican war on drugs. And when I'm referring to the Mexican war on drugs, I'm not referring to the, to the contemporary current one, but the historical process of a 60 years uh, initiative run by the, by, the Mexican, by the Mexican government. Illicit crops are not taken as an object of analysis per se, but rather as an invitation to better understand the social and political dynamics that shape lives in the mountains of Mexico, as well as in the capital cities of states like Guerrero, Sinaloa, Durango, and Nayarit. And the territories that we study, and I think it's important to then open the policy uh, discussion, the territories we, we, we study are immersed in a very paradoxical political situation marked 
simultaneously by isolation and integration. In fact, poppy production zones are very classically poorly communicated with the rest of the country due mainly to the horrendous conditions or absence of roadways and transportation services. But this isolation has not impeded mountainous zones from emerging as key battlefronts in the war on drugs at both national and international levels. And moreover, the paradox is all the more obvious when we consider, we consider that these marginalized territories are articulated through an illegal activity that generates spectacular, spectacular profits by connecting New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Canada with the Sierra Madre Occidental and Southern uh, Mexico. And this is particularly interesting because maybe in difference with Colombia, the illicit production of opium in Mexico is directly related to the US, to the US market, of course, which is like 2000 kilometers away, which is like right next to it, basically. So our projects seek to produce evidence based on fieldwork, uh, sources, question the myth and narrative that generally recount the political weight of illicit crops in Mexico, to try to disentangle what the war on drugs represents concretely in some of the most emblematic territories in Mexico, and what those crops tell us about economic development in, in the country, the role of the state with respect to some of its most forgotten citizens, and the stigma imposed on regions and population. It's important to explore um, three myths as we enter this complex topic. First, not all the poppies in Guerrero or Sinaloa, for example, are cultivated in plantations hidden away in areas of almost impossible access. And this is important for the policy side of it. In many zones, in fact, when the price of opium gum is high, poppies can be seen in the patios of homes and open plots and just a few meters from roads. They're in plain sight, even to the authorities in charge of combating their production. Puppy production then is no secret. And I think it's important to say that in production zones, the entire population knows where and when puppies are cultivated and who raises them, including once again, authorities and the forces of public order committed to destroy them. In fact, we try to show that illicit crops respond to political, economic and social interests that have not been studied sufficiently and that drug trafficking is actually part of the Mexican state, of course. Then, and I think it's important to contextualize this as well, poppy production in Mexico has no traditional roots in the autochthonous, endemic or historical sense of the word. It is an economic phenomenon, a production propelled by a market. It's not to say that the poppy flower has not been integrated into cultural practices, but it's only to underline the need to avoid any romanticized visions of poppy cultivations in, 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 in Mexico. None of our, of our interlocutors spoke of poppies as anything but a form of labor, an economic necessity, and a way to earn uh, a living. Not one interlocutor defended the flower culturally. Then, and again, it's important for the, for the policy side of it, um, Puppy production in Mexico must be understood through an historical perspective that is linked to the formation of the Mexican state, of course, the political and economic shift that culminated with the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, which played the fundamental role in the production boom of drugs and especially uh, opium uh, production. 
Illicit crops in this case can be understood as an adaptation to economic and social uh, policies that interact with the repression organized by, uh, by the state. So in fact, what we see is that poppy growers in Mexico can be seen as social groups that seek to achieve social integration into one of the only markets that economy has made available to them. In that case, what we still see in Mexico and, and, and in these regions, and I think it's, it's important for the international comparison probably, is that no other productive activity is as profitable for those peasants as poppy cultivation. But no one, neither growers or analysts, could see the crisis that opium has uh, known in the past years, mainly due to fentanyl uh, consumption in, in, in the US. This is interesting because it allows us to question the profit, the profit the profitability of drug production, since usually stu studies on drug trafficking tend to overvalue the profits it generates. Not only this nourishes a very viable myth, but they also fail to analyze how well shared that is the value chain of the drug economy. And we pay scant attention to its importance in Mexico agricultural panorama. And this is especially important when it comes to imagining, of course, social solutions and policy solutions to drug production. If we still believe that the drugs economy is integrated into peasantry, for example, if we still believe that the, um, the vast majority of the, money, of, of the money goes to the hands of the producers, we can then understand why uh, social uh, programs that are aiming at substitution um, of opium economy, for example, have, have failed to actually achieve uh, their, their uh, proposed objectives. What we reveal is basically a world constructed upon an infinite succession of actors, both public and private, that link farmers to consumption markets across thousands of kilometers and through dozens of intermediaries. It is what we have been documenting, the work organization that converted farmers into a source of labor and then converted them in growers, peones, slitters, transporters, gatherers, heroin cooks, traffickers, or hitmen. So basically the branches of an industry that if we again fail to understand how it connects Mexico to the U.S., we will be failing um, the policy side of it and how we can respond to it in a non-violent way, of course. In that sense, I think it's important to remind um, the socioeconomic weight of illegal puppies, connecting it to the legal side of it. And that's also important for the, for the policy uh, considerations. We can't understand the strengths of the illegal economy without the connection that actually links them to the cities of the states where it's produced, for example. The wealth that is circulating in those cities is directly connected to the illegal economy, of course, but it's converted into legal activities that, that are usually left aside by uh, the repressive actions led by the government first, and the social programs that aim at um, actually supporting the work of, uh, of farmers in, in, in Mexico. And, and when we separate them, we actually don't see that the market, the opium market in Mexico directly connects the farmers, yes, but also the people that live on opium economy in the cities where they actually consume uh, uh, goods that are financed by the opium economy. So trying to document the circulation of, of wealth between the farmers and the cities 
is absolutely fundamental in order to uh, understand how we can address opium production in Mexico. I will go to the to the main conclusions and and and, and trying to open the, the discussion for 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 afterwards. Um, and to repeat that in the productive chain of opium and heroin in Mexico, much of the money generated is actually captured by legal and illegal intermediaries rather than farmers. This means, of course, that the fantastic profitability of the final product has almost no structural impact on inequalities, discrimination, criminalization, or the lack of state investment. The other important thing is to remember that illicit crops cannot develop without relations with the state. Far from observing the absence of the state, we reveal an absolute distrust on the part of the inhabitants towards public authorities, despite constant interaction with them. What matters here is understanding qualitatively how public authorities are present and behave in the territories where they are present. Then the studies that describe drug markets as mechanical, predictable, easy to read worlds could not possibly be further from reality. What we found are complex, next, complex networks of intermediation, ephemeral realities and constant impositions, fluctuations and threats. And that's very important, I think, when it comes to designing policy response to it. And finally, of course, the fact that illicit markets do not flourish in an economic or political vacuum. The dynamism and competitiveness of Mexican mountains in the drug markets is anchored in the illicit economy that provide the best support for illicit economies to thrive. Anal analyzing these is essential for understanding dr drug trafficking and its contemporary evolutions. And I will finish here and leave uh, the policy again, like the policy side for, for the questions and the, and, the, and the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Romain. Um, now we go back to the Andes region uh, with David Restrepo from CESET at Los Andes University, and he's going to discuss and reflect on the also very novel uh, uh, policy in Bolivia about the social control. So go ahead, David. Thank you, Maria Alejandra, and thank you to the organizers. Um, and so I'm responsible for one of the research areas of CESED. Um, and I guess in order to contextualize my presentation, I would like to reveal a bit my interest. I'm mostly interested in how we foster both legal and social systems that uh, contain the harm of psychoactive substances, um, as well as maximize uh, their benefits, in particular for uh, those uh, groups of the population that have been uh, most affected by the consequences of uh, the punitive drug policies uh, we have been trying to impose um, in our societies for over 100 years now. Um, and I think, uh, and this is more you know, a personal uh, opinion that it animates my work, that understanding these plants and substances and the societies, cultures uh, around them that have built um, the mechanisms for containing those harms and maximizing those benefits is a particular inspiration um, uh, in that kind of a policy entrepreneurship journey um, that I find myself in. And Bolivia exemplifies that best, I think, uh, within uh, the Andean region. Um, and so uh, with that premise, I, I want to invite you to a very brief, you know, few minute crash course on uh, focus historical context 
on Bolivia's coca policy in, in comparative perspective across uh, the Andean region and its experience uh, with uh, coca social or community, depending on how you want to translate it, uh, control of coca. Um, this to tee up what is just the beginning of, of a research project that we have initiated with our peers in Bolivia uh, to understand how that uh, policy uh, has been evolving. Um, it's now been over a decade since its implementation, and there has been some, uh, you know, very important, you know, seminal work uh, that researchers in Bolivia did in the early days, and we want to see what has happened since. Um, so with that in mind, um, and, and knowing that there are people from potentially other regions of the world who might, uh, who might be coming, uh, dialing in or um, looking at this recording, uh, recording Nokoka is a plant that has had uh, a lot of periods uh, within history. It's a very, um, and in throughout this time has had multiple iterations in, in the narratives of, of the societies it has been used. And it has really what we've seen uh, is its progression from being a sacred plant among indigenous communities to a damned uh, plant that is uh, you know, conflated with uh, all the chaos and destruction that surrounds the illicit cocaine trade. Uh, so today I'm not gonna focus too much on that because I think that probably the people uh, joining this conference know quite a bit about that as well as everybody. Um, but I am going to talk a little bit more about coca. Um, and so, you know, coca is this, this uh, wonderful bush, in fact, um, belonging to a very large um, a, a, a family of plants that contains the metabolite cocaine it's only very recently in the past 150 years been isolated, but that has been for thousands of years a key uh, central role to uh, indigenous uh, cultures. Um, those cultures uh, have of course uh, suffered through colonization and genocide and epistemicide, but even uh, despite uh, this push to try to eliminate that culture, there are still approximately 10 million people across Latin America who consume uh, coca leaf. Uh, the share of, of that is highest in Bolivia, 27% of the population uh, consumes coca. Um, and they do so because coca has a very uh, important uh, and longstanding cultural as well as functional value as, uh, as a stimulant uh, that aids in, in work um, and that is uh, used as a fulcrum for uh, community um, for community development and for, and for political organization really at the local level. Um, it also has a lot of medicinal and nutritional uh, properties uh, in traditional medicine, which in fact um, in the, uh, has been uh, validated through a number of scientific studies despite the difficulty uh, in actually doing research with this plant as, as with other uh, controlled plants. Um, but the scientific uh, research available in in indicates really interesting potential across a variety of global public health priorities. Um, and it's those, uh, you know, those values that we have found in, in this plant uh, that actually have animated the indigenous and social movements that have resisted um, the paradigm of stigma and, and, um, and uh, violent control of these plants. Um, and have created uh, a, uh, a window, an opening uh, in the international uh, drug control system to enable the emergence of, uh, of legal um, 
um, uh, legal of, of sorry of a legal window for uh, control, um, and that is how it, essentially this uh, kind of summarizes the way in which Bolivia developed this uh, uh, policy innovation. Um, when we look at Bolivia in, in context, Bolivia is in fact the country that has the least punitive drug control uh, policy of the Andean region. It is the one that eradicates, that uh, you know, pulls out the fewest uh, plants that has the lowest seizures. Um, there's, it's actually not very clear how much they're investing in alternative development because the concept of alternative development is no longer in use in Bolivia. Bolivia believes in uh, holistic or integral development with coca. Um, and has developed a, a, a more vibrant form of a, a legal market uh, for coca uh, products. And interestingly, um, the results are not what you would expect if you believe that uh, a punitive approach is what will bring about um, better drug policy outcomes. Coca leaf prices in Bolivia are higher. Um, the crop sizes normalized um, by population are overall lower. Uh, the prevalence of cocaine use is, is, lower, uh, is lower than Colombia for sure. And it has a much more uh, peaceful, lower uh, homicide rates in rural uh, regions. If we look across um, uh, the time span since the late uh, 80s to the present day, we can also see that Bolivia has been able to maintain the most stable um, coca crop hectares of the region, whereas Colombia that has had the most punitive uh, has seen the most volatile and has since uh, the late 90s been the dominant player in terms of coca cultivation. Um, so that uh, you know, has really animated our interest in trying to understand how Bolivia has gone about doing that. Um, and so this brings me to my next point uh, about coca and Bolivia. Coca, uh, of course, has been in Bolivia for thousands of years. There are two main uh, cultivation sites, the Jungas of La Paz, which are uh, uh, it's this mountainous area uh, that goes towards the Amazon region close to La Paz. And then the Tropic of, of Cochabamba, also known as uh, the Chapare, um, which is a more recent area of coca cultivation. And it, it, it has been considered a, an escape valve of the mining workers uh, looking for opportunity uh, and for new land uh, in this uh, area. Um, of course, like the entire world, uh, Bolivia, um, has uh, faced the adoption of, of punitive drug policy and has seen several phases of that approach in the 90s and in the 80s and 90s. Um, the main uh, policy approach was conditional alternative development uh, that was mostly sponsored by, by the United States that uh, featured essentially, we will help you if you take your coca crops out. Um, that was followed by a period that was more uh, led by the EU and, and actually overlapped a little bit, where the idea was, no, actually, we will support you in developing new economies, but you don't have to pull out your crops. We will uh, allow for a transitional period, and uh, we will not make that uh, conditional. Um, during this time, and especially in the late 90s, there was a push towards eradication as as. Um, Bolivia saw increases in its uh, coca crops, but the social organization uh, that has especially built around um, uh, coca unions in the Tropic of Chapare, of the Tropic of Cochabamba, um, resisted that approach very much and led to a very strong confrontation between rural regions and the state. 
And this led to, in the early 2000s, uh, the Cato Accord, whereby um, uh, households were allowed to have a small amount of, of coca um, crops um, to be legal. And the, the union would control and monitor that amount of coca that uh, was authorized per family. And that very rapidly led to an end of uh, the conflict between the coca unions and the central government and uh, saw the beginning of what has been a fairly uh, um, a long period of uh, economic uh, diversification in the Tropic of Chapare, according to the literature, uh, led by uh, Bolivia's own uh, conception of, of what coca uh, is. So um, that, um, and, and in conscious of the time, that type of, uh, of approach um, is basically um, a, a hybrid of uh, controls that are built bottom up through the coca union and um, intervention at the state level uh, to support um, the, the coca unions. So the government provides registration and monitoring uh, for uh, these coca fields, whereas it's the union that is responsible for enforcing that the cato uh, limits are maintained. Um, the, the literature uh, that exists has found that there, you know, there are a number of strengths uh, to this approach. Uh, first and foremost, the reduction in conflict, uh, which in, in coca growing regions in Colombia and Peru is the mainstay. And we see it every day in very personal ways. Um, an increase in the coca prices. Uh, actually, when they get the coca unions to organize and to see that if, we, if they control the amount of coca grown, that's gonna mean that they'll have better um, negotiation power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the rest of the supply chain. Uh, that increases coca prices and that has actually also borne out in the data. Um, the, the fact that you have this greater stability also enables not only the state to arrive, but for households to start investing in other economic activities. So the Chapari has seen more um, uh, new economic activities arise and uh, Interestingly, even though you would seem that this is a permissive uh, approach, the, the coca crop hectare is a lot more stable. Of course, there are weaknesses as well described in the literature. You know, there are game, there's gaming of limits. Certain farmers through their families are able to access uh, more catos. The diversion to the cocaine trade, of course, continues. Um, and it is like, a, it is a secret that everybody knows. And um, because of the, the different uh, political integration between uh, the, the growing regions with the state, there's quite a lot of tension between uh, the Yungas and the uh, Chapare around uh, coca limits and, and who gets the right uh, to participate in the legal market. Um, and that this has not actually stopped the agricultural frontier from expanding. Um, so based on, on, on that literature, we have just begun uh, going into the field to try to understand how that social control model has evolved since, since it, it was implemented, especially uh, since um, the political instability that has ensued after um, the end of the Morales uh, government, um, you know, the, the transitional government that was in place and the new government. It has not been easy. <laughs> uh, coca is a very sensitive topic um, in the whole Andean region and in Bolivia in particular due to um, you know, the, the political uh, climate at the moment. Um, but what we have found so far, and this is very, very early, and it's a qualitative piece uh, that we see as a pilot 
to help us identify interesting themes to, to really uh, zoom into is that there's quite good legitimacy and institutionalization of the process of, of coca community control. There have been some changes. Uh, apparently there's a trade of uh, union members between areas to help provide uh, a more impartial audit of, uh, of the um, compliance to the policy. But there is con a continued discussion around the gaming that, that happens. Although it, is done, it doesn't seem like it has reached a point where it is critical and where people are jumping uh, a ship. Um, what we expect to get out of this research is to identify you know, key changes, if any, that have taken place over this time period. Um, the you know, sources of, of both conflict and leg legitimation around um, social control, and then lessons and, and relevance beyond Bolivia. I think in Colombia in particular, um, we are uh, desperate for new approaches uh, because we are trying uh, the, the punitive approach, we're trying crop substitution, uh, but the research that um, several distinguished colleagues as well has, have done around um, uh, uh, community, uh, the role of community organization and community level institutions um, indicates that we need uh, you know, innovations along the lines that Bolivia has been able to implement. Um, so that's where I would end. Thank you, uh, David. Um, I think we have plenty of time, not plenty, but some time to open the floor for, for discussion and, and questions. But, but I would like to ask myself some, some questions and, and reflect on trying to have some links between the three presentations. Um, and, and I would like to, to start by saying that even though COCA, as, as David just explained, do have a tradition in, in some of the communities that cultivate the COCA in Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, when it comes from, when it comes to COCA for cocaine market, it just becomes another commodity, just as in the case of poppy in, in Mexico, eh, and, and, and becomes just a, another productive activity, the most profitable activity, uh, but also the activity in which uh, not the most of these profits are in, in place. So I would like to ask uh, for remind if, if you think that this titling uh, will be also an interesting policy uh, in Mexico as the one that Manuel Pilar discussed. Um, and also I would like to ask David if what is the relationship, as far as, as we know, <laughs> between the, 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 the social control and the presence of the state as the one that Maria Pilar was discussing? No? If it's only the community organized themselves or what is the role of the state? Um, it would be interesting also to discuss if this social control will make sense for a, such a violent context such as Colombia or, or Mexico. Um, and also for Maria Pilar, a, a more, uh, I should have known this because we have discussed this many times, but it just brings to my, my mind uh, when you mentioned your control uh, villages, uh, that you said there are villages that were, it was, they were, be, they were going to be part of the treatment, but they were not titled. And I guess the question is why they were not finally titled. <laughs> what was an issue there? Why they were prioritized, but not titled. So yeah, maybe a bit unorganized, but those three questions for you guys. And I'm happy to also give the, 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 the room for questions from the public. 
Uh, but maybe you can answer these questions first. And then if people have questions, please just raise your hand and I will just give you the, the opportunity to ask. So I don't know who wants to start. <laughs> I can start. Hold on. I think my question is very, is, is very precise. Um, yeah, these, our control group, our control villages were uh, villages that were exposed to the treatment, but were not, um, were not treated, right? So our kind of like information, the, the allocations that we have, the, the typing that we have are mainly public land allocations. So these are allocations that were given directly by the land agency, the national land agency. So the reason why is basically, but the difference between the treatment and the control is be precisely because of administrative matters. So it seems that they were exposed to the treatment. They were actually going through the process to get uh, treated, but because of administrative matter, because all what we have, all our sample is just public, loon, uh, public land allocation. We have different routes. We have the judicial route, which is the most complicated one, but our sample is only about public land allocation. So this is these are this is the titling that it comes mainly from the central governments, from the national public agency, uh, and this is and the reason why is because basically administrative matter, which means that it's not necessarily is not because of some like a specific characteristic of each of these villages, but because some of the process of this administrative matter that comes from Bogota, that is coming from Bogota, uh, was, you know, in the process was actually more straightforward in some villages than in other ones, but that, that in the other ones, but both of them were exposed, uh, but one of them received um, the public land titling and the other ones did not. If we actually use, for example, only the judicial routes, it means that these will depend on some local characteristics because this is the, the titling. It doesn't depend on the public um, the land uh, agency, but it depends on other, on other factors that are more related to the village's characteristics. But this one is more, is more exogenous to the village that were not treated. That was Thank you, El Pilar. Romain. Oh, ah, okay, David. <laughs> and there is also questions in the in the in the chat. So if you can also react to those, that would be great. But yeah, go ahead, David. Sure. So your question was about the role of the state and their interfacing with uh, with local social control. What I can report in terms of the the literature on this matter, um, I think something that was interesting in terms of the the different coca control regimes. Um, was that when um, when uh, uh, control of coca crops was uh, was very much focused on elimination of the crops? There was a very strong um, conflict that was taking place between the state and uh, the coca unions. But in fact, it was the coca unions that had been building the state from the bottom up um, in these areas. And I think that's something that it's really important for us to remember. Um, in terms of what we mean by the state. And, and, and I think there's a trope of, you know, the central government bringing the state to the regions. And I think the experience of Bolivia is one where actually these unions are very much the state and have a lot of power uh, in terms of de determining uh, how things are done. And, and that, that actually sounds like a good thing, having a really strongly organized uh, population uh, in rural areas seems like the necessary conditions for having a, a state that functions and that is legitimate. Um, so, 
And, and another, I guess, anecdote around that is that when um, especially EU-led programs uh, identified that instead of trying to um, focus on COCA, they, were, they started focusing on how do you integrate uh, these areas with the, the broader you know, governmental institutions. And they, were, uh, they invested in strengthening those institutions rather than focusing on um, just the economic elements of this. And, um, and that I think contributed in the literature, the discussion is how that contributed to you know, the, the, the regime change that took place in the early 2000s. Um, so those are, you know, a broad comments on, on, on the question. There is another question maybe that you can address for you, uh, David, and is what are the strategies that Bolivian organizations commonly use to prevent their traditional products from being acquired by criminal organization? Uh, I ask this because here in Brazil, every day the police arrest a ton of cocaine from Bolivian mm -hmm. origin. So does this control exist effectively? <laughs> I think I think there's um, there are a lot of um, loopholes. There's very, and I say this also from from experience being in Bolivia. You know, there are a number of market. There are, there are I think two or three marketplaces uh, that are considered legal, and so uh, farmers uh, and their distributors can take coca to those marketplaces. But what happens after the marketplace? And there's quite a lot of controls uh, before that stage but what happens after the marketplace is anybody's guess and so there are a lot of um there are a lot of uh opportunities for uh coca being deviated in that direction as well as uh below um and i think but i don't know if, if that has necessarily been a bad thing for bolivia um if we get out of i guess a very just normative and rigid framework I think these messy policies can be very advantageous for countries, even if they do not um, have good drug policy outcomes for Brazil. But for Bolivia, uh, I think that has enabled uh, a kind of uh, stability that when you, know, when you go to coca growing regions in Colombia, you do not see. And, and honestly, uh, from, uh, as a policy researcher, I uh, would prioritize you know, violence outcomes in my country than I would uh, whether uh, people down the line are getting drugs or not. But that's obviously uh, a question of values. Okay, so uh, Romain, I think related to the question that I asked you about if titling programs such as the one Maria Pilar discussed have, you know, something uh, to do in Mexico, there's another question here for you. And is if the policy in Mexico have not prioritized programs like alternative development or less punitive approach, can you tell us what is the relationship between the agrarian development policies, also the power of agrarian economic elites in Mexico, and the growing of pop in these margin zones? Such a big question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a it's like a, a research program almost. Um, um, I think it's 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 uh, it's very interesting because again, Mexico I think lies probably. 30 to 40 years behind to what you guys are presenting um, today, honestly. Um, today and, 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 and for the past decades, there is no official program that aims at basically dealing with um, opium production in another way than um, destruction of, of, of crops, basically. Like there is no, the word substitution, for example, does not exist in, in, in public policy in Mexico. 
um, and it's not existing uh, today. Today, what we have, and it's probably um, one of the programs that goes towards uh, the research that um, Maria was 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 presenting when 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 she was talking about about titling and and land, and it goes towards, of course, like conflict over land and property, uh, which is extremely important in in, in Mexico and in rural areas um, affected by by drug production. In, in in particular, is that basically we have a federal program that is called Sembrando Vida. Um, sowing life in, in, in English, if, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, and the program basically aims at um, non-officially, let's say, doing substitution of uh, illicit, illicit crops. But it does not focus only on uh, opium poppy producing region. It's a rural agricultural program that aims at um, taking marginalized rural regions in Mexico from, from poverty, basically, by offering... Um, crops and rural development to regions, but it goes towards substitution, uh, for example, of less profitable uh, crops towards growing avocado, for example, like high value uh, agricultural uh, needs. And in the mix, the federal government is trying, is trying to put like some sort of pacification and some sort of substitution programs, but it's not like officially presented. So we can't actually, and it's very hard to actually monitor what's going on uh, in, in terms of, 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 uh, of opium production in, 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 in Mexico. So again, like it's, it's like talking about something that we know does exist, but we don't have background. We don't have systemic uh, data about it. We don't have um, a rural diagnosis about what's going on in terms of opium production in Mexico. And especially because Opium production uh, takes place in quite heter heterogeneous regions of Mexico and the, and the south and in, in the north. And those regions um, do not necessarily have a lot in common, except that they grow uh, opium. And it goes towards uh, the, the, the question that was asked by, by Alvaro on um, the alternative development and the relationship uh, between development policies and the power of agrarian uh, economic elites. If you take Guerrero, which is a, a southern, uh, quite poor state, but the first producer of, of, of opium in Mexico, and compare it to Sinaloa, which is a state in the north, and it's, which is a state that is much richer, you can tell that actually the connection between local agricultural elites is different in, in Guerrero and in Sinaloa with respect to growing uh, opium. What we see is actually, for example, the prices of opium gum in Sinaloa are much higher than in Guerrero, like historically. And what we have been able to document it, it as, it's actually uh, linked to the way the agricultural elites in Sinaloa are much more integrated um, to the economic system in Sinaloa and that drug production in Sinaloa is actually in quite integrated to agricultural elite, which is not the case in Guerrero, for example. But again, like we're, we're, we're kind of opening the door towards a world that is um, very, 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 very slowly being open. Uh, we don't know much. And unfortunately, we're not able uh, to monitor and document what's being done by the, by the federal government, be it actually in nonviolent ways or violent ways. It's very hard to actually monitor uh, the action of the armed forces, for example. We have been producing and releasing the first 
open access database on arm eradication of opium poppy in Mexico. And it's the first step. It's been a huge effort and it's a very little step. And again, if I compare what we have been doing and what we can do in Mexico to what you guys are doing right now, um, it, it's, it's insane the gap that, that we see between the, the two regions and the two countries. And my last comment on this would be that basically in Mexico, opium production is a non-existent problem, basically. Like the, the, the federal government has not been talking about it for decades almost. It's not a public problem, basically. Like it's not on the agenda. Uh, it comes to the agenda when it comes to cooperation with the US, for example. It comes to the agenda when something happens to um, a farmer in these regions or something happens to a soldier in these regions, like, you know, shootings and stuff like that. But basically it's a non-existing uh, issue in Mexico, although it concerns um, hundreds of thousands of, of, of families. So it's, it's, it's quite strange, honestly, um, because it's, it's a hard, hard, hard effort to actually put it on the agenda. And um, to be absolutely honest with you, it's not, it's not really working. <laughs> oh, um, very worrying as well. <laughs> there is another question that, I mean, it, this was not about any of the presentation, but I guess it's related that I think would be interesting to discuss. And Mara also asked if in your work in, I guess, Bolivia, Mexico, and Colombia, did you identify a tendency towards land acquisition by criminal organization in coca producing regions? Um, I don't know if you, you can comment on that. Uh, I know that's, that's the case and there has been studies documenting that in Central America for sure, uh, uh, as part of the drug trafficking, how the, the public land and indigenous land has shifted to private lands. Um, but I'm wondering if in, in Mexico, uh, Bolivia, Colombia, you have any sense about that? And to also to just to open the floor for, for discussion, I would like to, to sort of ask about if uh, Romain and Maria Pilar think that a, a system such as social control in Bolivia could be developed in, 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 in a, such a violent context, such as Colombia and Mexico. Um, so I will leave you with those two. I don't know which one. Who wants to be brave and take the floor first? David? <laughs> I would like to take the floor because I also have to board a plane. <laughs> um, I am. Um, and, and I would say that um, there are some parts I, from more from personal experience and from actual uh, data, I feel that the there are areas in Colombia where there's a very strong level of community organization. And in fact, your work, Maria Alejandra, has shown that for in the Pacific. Um, but other parts of the country have also demonstrated that. Um, and indigenous communities, in fact, um, are examples of that. Um, and I think if, if, I think we need to think about what are the conditions that get uh, a community, you know, grassroots level organization organizing to happen. Um, and once those conditions are, are in place, I think the possibility for, of, of, uh, of a kind of model as Bolivia starts to open up. Um, but I think the conditions for making that kind of organization happen um, are maybe poorly understood still. Like what we need to, what needs to be done, how you can intervene to foster that kind of outcome. 
Um, I think that that remains a, a big question, especially if you're thinking about the, a, a situation of war as we're seeing in, in Colombia or as Roman was discussing for Mexico. Thanks, David. I don't know if Manuel Pilar and, and Romain, this is another question for you in the chat uh, about the expansion of poppy uh, cultivation in, in countries such as Peru and Paraguay, and the question if that is part of the expansion of the activities of the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel. I don't know if you have any information about that. Very, very, very briefly uh, to let Maria del Pilar actually um, take, take the floor after that. Um, regarding the, the question on, on Sinaloa cartel and Jalisco cartel and poppy cultivation in Peru and Paraguay, I, I didn't know, uh, honestly, that poppy cultivation was uh, booming in, in Peru and Paraguay. I find it quite strange, to be absolutely honest, because I, I didn't think like there was a, a huge demand and market for actual uh, poppy cultivation, but that uh, would be interesting to actually see. Um, the participation of Sinaloa and Jalisco cartels and all this naming, like, I'm, I'm always uh, quite skeptical, honestly, about um, what, what we hear and see about, you know, Sinaloa cartel, even in, in Colombia, actually, I know it's, it's been an issue at, at some point. Um, I'd be uh, quite curious to actually document this uh, on the ground and see how, um, how, 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 how relevant it is. And, and the question about the flexibilization policies in Mexico, um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I actually see um, what, what are those uh, flexibilization policies uh, towards, uh, towards drugs actually um, in, in Mexico. But I think it's um, regarding your, um, your, your questions on, 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 on Mexico and how, how we could actually go forward um, in finding a solution and if something as uh, what David was, was presenting could work, it's actually interesting to, to see that you have local initiatives in Mexico, um, especially in indigenous regions that produce uh, Amapola poppy. Um, and you have social organizations that aim at uh, transforming the way this illicit uh, economy is actually um, being driven by different um, drivers uh, towards towards uh, the, the communities and how it, it could be integrated into something that helps uh, the communities actually thrive on, 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 on something else. So, so, so we have like dynamics, we have local dynamics and social uh, organization. Uh, there are interesting uh, things uh, happening, but again, like there is no public interest to actually take this uh, into their hands. And I think it's going to be interesting to monitor what's going on in the second half of um, this administration in, in, in Mexico. Thank you. Maria Pilar, do you wanna add something? No, I mean, I, I think I think that I mean the social organizations can actually play an important role as well. I think, I mean, with the story that I that I that I that I that I tell you today is more about the state is coming, you know, state is 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 the state presence, but the state presence is not gonna be possible if they don't build some trust with the social communities, with the local communities. So it's, that is important as well. So, so I think they, the, the, the social organizations can actually make this trust uh, happens faster and easier, I would say. Um, so I think it, it is important. It's not part of what we're actually studying now, but I think it's an important factor to keep in mind and, and yeah. Okay, well, so I think it's about time to close uh, because David is gonna take a plane and because our time is <laughs> out anyway. 
so thank you, Romain, Maria del Pilar, and, and David. I think that we have reflected on a very different topic uh, in this conference, even because we are like in the other side of the criminal organization, even though these are people who are participating in a legal market, is we are not considering the producer as an part of an illegal or criminal organization. So we have to think about other policies in this side of the chain, basically. So thank you for, for your thoughts and thank you for the people who stay until the end. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.